Hello and welcome to this year's Maurice Fraser Memorial Lecture. Maurice Fraser was a much-loved colleague here at the LSE who served as the head of the European Institute uh, before he sadly passed away in 2015. We're delighted that his family, uh, his wife Nicolette, and some of his closest friends are watching us uh, this evening. Morris felt a very strong connection to LSE. He'd been an undergraduate student here, and then later he returned as one of our first professors in practice. For Morris, in the meantime, had acquired much experience in public service, in Conservative Party politics, and as a special advisor in the Foreign Office. An important part of Morris's focus was Europe. It reflected his own early education and continued his across his professional and academic uh, career. Our speaker this evening knew Morris and his Europeanism in his Foreign Office days. We're delighted to welcome Lord Derek, Kim Derek, as our guest this evening. Lord Derek served as the UK's ambassador in Washington from 2016 to 2019. Earlier from 2007 to 2011, he'd been the UK's permanent representative uh, in Brussels to the European Union. At other times, he served as the EU advisor to Tony Blair and as national security advisor to David Cameron. He became a member of the House of Lords in 2019. Few people then are in a better place to talk to us about the transatlantic relationship today and its challenges. Kim Darrick witnessed the arrival of the Trump administration. Indeed, he was reported to, to have had some low opinions of the Trump administration in the early days. He also followed the Brexit drama, the rise of Boris Johnson, and the talk of a new UK-US trade deal. Linking these events are underlying questions about shifts in public attitudes towards politics, the robustness of our democratic politics, and changing norms in international relations. Each of these questions connects politics, economics, and foreign policy. With Britain's withdrawal from the European Union, a new phase for the transatlantic relationship is said to have emerged. The Triangle of the United States, the European Union, and the UK, today commands the biggest trade and investment flows in the world. President Biden has said the United States is back, ready to engage more with NATO and to collaborate to secure, to support democracies around the world. But of course, there are many challenges and unanswered questions about how these issues may play out. Before passing over to Kim Derrick, can I just make one or two um, points about the format for this evening? We invite you, the audience, to send us your questions at any time using the Q&A facility, which is at the bottom of your Zoom screen. I'll read these out uh, when we get to that point, and I'll do my best to cover as many of your questions as possible. So please, can I ask you to keep your questions short? There's a time and a place for speeches, but this is a Q&A uh, uh, section. You can also share, as your, with, share with us your comments at any time using Twitter, and we suggest using the hashtag, hashtag LSEEI30, 
because this event is part of the European Institute's 30th anniversary. Uh, and so the hashtag reflects that. The event is being recorded and we hope to make it available as a podcast uh, later, uh, subject to there being no technical uh, difficulties. So no more introduction uh, from me. Can I uh, invite Lord Derek, Kim Derek, uh, to make his presentation? Uh, over to you, Kim. Thank you. Kevin, thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, let me start by saying what an honour and pleasure it is to speak at an event that is that is in memory of, of Maurice Fraser. Uh, I first came across Maurice when he was special advisor in the Foreign Office in the 90s to three successive foreign secretaries, to, uh, to Geoffrey Howe, to John Major, and to Douglas Hur. And I was at that time part of the team trying to get the Maastricht Treaty through the House of Commons, which I promise you wasn't the easiest task of my career. So I saw a great deal of Morris and write a lot on his advice. Then later, when he was at the LSE, he dragged me across a couple of times to talk to his students. Morris was brilliant at whatever he took on, but I mainly remember him as one of the kindest, gentlest people you could ever hope to meet, and as the most entertaining company with whom you could ever hope to spend time. So he remains badly missed by all who, who knew him. Before I kick the session off by talking about my time in America, 2016 until that rather abrupt ending to my posting in mid-2019. And as you said in introduction, this was essentially the age of Donald Trump. Uh, and it was the most extraordinary period in recent American history. I'm not sure how much of this how much of the colour filtered over here. But remember, this was the president who tried to buy Greenland. This was the president who, at a press conference during the pandemic, suggested people should protect themselves by injecting themselves. Sorry, Kim. I think we're picking up some noise, possibly from your papers. Right. Let me just... I apologise. Okay. Um... Uh, by injecting themselves with, with bleach, an announcement which, incidentally, prompted many of America's bleach manufacturers to take out instant adverts saying, do not on any account inject yourself with our product. And on a darker note, this was the president who tried to overturn his election loss by claiming on the basis of absolutely zero evidence that the election had been stolen and by inciting his followers to invade America's parliament. I won't take you through a blow-by-blow account of his presidency. If anyone would like that in the audience, can I recommend a highly readable book about it called Collateral Damage, now out in paperback and written by your speaker tonight. Instead, I'm just going to try briefly to answer four questions. How did this man win in 2016? Why did he lose in 2020? What were the implications of his claim that the 2020 election was somehow stolen? And what does Joe, Joe Biden's presidency mean for UK-US relations going forward? 2016 election first, and I will be brief. But remember, Donald Trump was a non-politician who had never run for any sort of public office. When I arrived in Washington in early 2016, absolutely no one in that town thought he was going to win. 
not even did they think he would win the Republican nomination, let alone the general election. I remember getting some top little commentators around to breakfast with the residents, and they likened Donald Trump to a shooting star, flaring briefly, but destined quickly to fade from view. Catch him while you can, they said. Once he had nailed the Republican nomination, uh, they took him more seriously, but they still couldn't ever imagine him as president. And they were reassured by the fact that Hillary Clinton was always ahead in the opinion polls, though towards the end, only narrowly. So why did Trump win? Four reasons. First, Hillary Clinton, to be blunt, was a deeply, deeply unpopular candidate. Second, actually, this felt like a change election. After eight years of Barack Obama, America seemed to want to change. And the business community, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, thought the Obama administration had been anti-business. Third, Donald Trump was an extraordinary campaigner. He spoke direct, straightforward language that everyone could connect with. And his lack of political correctness, while appalling to the US mainstream media, actually made his followers like him even more. I was told countless times, he's saying what we're thinking, all of which made him a hero to America's blue collar classes, notwithstanding the reality that he is the son of a wealthy property developer, he built his business of golf courses and, ho and hotels on the back of a $400 million loan from his father. Fourth, I would point to the 2008 financial crisis. Millions of Americans lost their jobs. Many of those millions lost their homes. The banks got bailed out to the tune of $700 billion. No bankers went to jail. Within a few years, bankers' bonuses were bigger than ever. And it exacerbated inequality. The gap in America between rich and poor actually grew bigger. Since 2008, those at the top of the ladder uh, have gained 13% in median net wealth. Those at the bottom are 39% poorer. So no surprise that there was a widespread feeling in the country that the system was rigged in favor of the elites on the East and West coasts, and that Washington really didn't care about people living from paycheck to paycheck. And in speech after speech, Donald Trump played to this audience and this perception. The words, they don't care about you. All that said, remember, he only won by tiny margins, 70,000 votes across three Rust Belt states. I won't dwell on, dwell on his record in office. I guess his biggest achievement was delivering the biggest tax cut package since Reagan in the 1980s, though it was largely unfunded. But if you were living in DC through that period, the impression was one of daily turmoil, even chaos. There was a revolving door of White House and cabinet appointments. One person who became a friend of mine, Anthony Scaramucci, literally got fired before he started his job. Um, he was hired as communications director and then was fired instantly for miscommunicating uh, to a journalist, um, which is some way to go. Um, elsewhere, the administration was trashing the post-war multilateral system. 
there was a permanent flow of criticism, even abuse of America's allies. And America withdrew from major deals like the Paris climate change deal. And the administration was constantly dogged by scandal. But I should add that even though hundreds of journalists tried to make their names by uncovering evidence that the Russians had some sort of hold on the president, none so far ever has. I'm going to fast forward to the 2020 election campaign and consider why Joe Biden, having come fourth and fifth in the first two primaries in Iowa and New Hampshire, eventually surfed a wave of support all the way to the White House. Now, Biden, for those who have not studied his background, he comes from modest beginnings. He was the son of a used car salesman. He was raised in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the epitome of a blue-collar coal mining and railway town. But he was a natural politician who actually got into the Senate at the extraordinarily young age of 31. And his 35-year Senate career was defined by pragmatism. He was stubbornly centrist. He consistently built bridges to Republicans to get things done. He was, of course, Barack Obama's vice president, but he was never a great campaigner. 2020 was his third run for the presidency. Uh, he failed pretty comprehensively in 1988 and in 2000. And it looked like 2020 was going the same way after the early primaries. But then he won big in South Carolina, thanks largely to Congressman Jim Clyburn, uh, Clyburn getting the African-American vote out for him. And then he kept on winning. When it came to the runoff, when he got the nomination, it came to the runoff with, uh, with Donald Trump. Actually, he largely disappeared from our screens. He campaigned from his basement, thanks to the pandemic. But this might, in fact, have been rather a clever strategy because, as it turned out, the more America saw of the president during the pandemic, the more it seemed that uh, the president was damaging himself. Did Trump lose just because of the pandemic? It has to have been a major reason. The incompetence, the deliberately misleading messaging, the ridiculing of precautions like mask wearing must have led substantial numbers of Americans to believe that he wasn't up to the job and was putting his own interests before their health. But I don't think it was just the pandemic. The Trump campaign rhetoric in 2016 was built on populist promises about bringing back factory jobs, about stopping illegal migration by building a wall, about reopening coal mines, about vanquishing America's enemies, about making America great again. But if these challenges had been easy, they would already have been overcome. In reality, they are very complex problems, and the Trump promises proved largely empty. During his presidency, more jobs were lost in the US coal industry than at any time in the last 60 years. Nearly 1,800 factories disappeared during the first two years of the Trump administration. Added to this, I believe the American public or enough of them, simply tired of the style and tone of the Trump presidency. He was never actually that popular amongst Americans as a whole. His approval ratings were sometimes in the low 30s, never much above the low 40s, and some key constituencies turned against him, seemingly less over his policies than over his conduct of the presidency. 
people got sort of fed up with the noise levels, with the never-ending fights and rows, and with political chaos being the lead story day after day. So in the end, despite barely campaigning, Biden won comfortably. The Democrat base turned out for him in greater numbers than it had for Hillary Clinton. And most importantly, he won the center, the independence. In 2016, Clinton lost the independence by four points. In 2020, Biden won them by 13 points, all of which contributed to something that wasn't that far short of a landslide. Electoral College by 306 to 232, and the popular vote by more than 6 million. I can't leave the subject of the 2020 election without saying something briefly about the events of 6 January, the day the mob invaded the Capitol building. Some of you may have seen a brilliant BBC Two documentary last week about it, eyewitness accounts of the event, and that served a real purpose, I think, because history is already being rewritten, not least by the former president himself, who said a few months ago that the rioters, and I quote, were great people, loving people who wanted to save the nation and were now being persecuted. The reality was, of course, terrifying. And remember, five people died that day. But the bigger point is that American democracy was actually on the edge in those hours. It was down to Vice President Mike Pence to preside over the formal counting the presidential college votes. He came under intense personal pressure from President Trump to cancel the vote. He refused. What if he had given in? What if, as almost happened, almost happened, he had been taken hostage by the rioters? What if some of the states which Biden won had refused to authorize the results and ordered endless recounts? What if the White House had done what it was certainly contemplating and tried to impose martial law across the country? All of these things seem inconceivable in a working democracy, but were quite close to actually happening, from which I draw the lesson that democracy is something we take for granted, but is actually more fragile than we think. And the lesson doesn't just apply only to America. Look at the assault on the judiciary in Poland or the attack on the free media in Hungary. Democracy is maintained not not, not just by the idea it embodies, but by the processes and structures through which it's delivered. These processes are precious. We need to be vigilant in protecting them. I'll finish with some words about about how Biden uh, is doing and what Donald Trump might do next. Biden's priority is clearly domestic policy, and he's proving quite radical. He has already delivered a almost $2 trillion economic stimulus package, and there are two more big spending bills before Congress. Infrastructure package, which the Republicans actually support, worth another trillion dollars, and the human infrastructure plan, which throws money at objectives like health and clean energy and education, which is probably going to be about $2 trillion. All of this gets through, you're at somewhere between four and a half and $5 trillion worth of new public spending and an overall policy intervention of the scale of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal or Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. In other words, a place in the 
history books. Internationally, as you said, Kevin, Biden is about a reset, hence the headline, America is back. On specifics, it means restoring US relations with Europe, no more of the Trump line that the EU is worse than China. It means reaffirming US support for multilateralism, for the post-war international order, and for NATO. And it means taking the US back into the Paris climate change deal. But all of this, of course, is to ignore the elephant in the room, which is that chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan as National Security Advisor, and my strictly personal view is that we shouldn't have left. We've reduced casualties to a minimum. No British soldiers lost their lives in Afghanistan in 2020 or 2021. We've greatly reduced our presence from more than 130,000 Western troops in the early years to a few thousand Americans and less than a thousand Brits in recent years. And we've evolved an operational plan where we provided planning, intelligence, logistics, air cover, and medical evacuation facilities, but the Afghan troops fronted up on the fighting. This was working. If we had stuck with it, girls would still be going to school in Afghanistan, women would still be working, the Taliban wouldn't be sitting in the presidential palace in Kabul, and Afghanistan would not be facing multiple crises, including, as highlighted in the media today, a food crisis. I should add, in fairness, a lot of my colleagues from from my era disagree with me, and they think we should have left, but much, much earlier. What we all agree on is that we shouldn't have left in the middle of the fighting season. And furthermore, in leaving, you shouldn't concentrate your evacuation on the notoriously unsafe, unstable Kabul airport. You should have kept a military airport open, like Bagram, 90 minutes by road from Kabul. So I think withdrawal was a major foreign policy mistake, compounded by bad timing. But I also think it's far too early to write the Biden presidency off because of this bad decision and botched process. 70% of the American people, according to the opinion polls, also wanted America to leave Afghanistan. They didn't like the way it unfolded, but they supported the basic decision. And if Biden gets his trillions of dollars worth of spending through, that will make a difference in every neighborhood and to every family. And let's see what that does to his approval ratings. As for UK relations with the new administration, we don't start from the perfect place. Neither Biden personally nor the Democrats in general are admirers of Brexit. And we risk counting less in Washington now that we are no longer sitting around the EU table. But I think we've been fortunate that in 2021, we've been hosting two events which have brought, will bring Joe Biden to these shores, the G7 summit in Cornwall a few months ago and the COP26 summit in Glasgow in a few weeks' time. In particular, I think if we can deliver a real success from COP26, that will matter to Biden. Donald Trump was essentially a climate change denier, but Joe Biden campaigned on greening America. You can add to this slice of good fortune a genuinely solid bedrock of UK-US relations, which includes the shared history, the cultural ties, and of course, the defense, security, and intelligence relationship. As Ambassador in Washington, I saw at close quarters just how strong and deep these ties are, 
and I'm sure they will continue to flourish. And indeed, the re recent AUKUS agreement between Australia, UK and the US is evidence of that. There is, though, one issue that I think could cause a real rift. The Biden administration is taking a close interest in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Remember that America feels some ownership on, some contribution to the Good Friday Agreement. And if we look in the context of our negotiations with the EU, to be putting the achievements in Northern Ireland of the last two decades at risk, I think we'll be under a lot of pressure and a lot of trouble in Washington. I'm going to finish where I started with um, uh, the future for Donald Trump. He's not done much since his defeat, a few interviews, a few speeches, quite a lot of golf. Um, he's been like a sort of king in exile, um, sort of hiding away in a gilded mansion, endlessly recycling the fantasy that his defeat was a conspiracy and plotting his revenge on those who wronged him while a succession of lesser figures queued to sort of kiss the ring. But everyone wants to know whether he will run in 2024 and try to become the first president since Grover Cleveland, who served in 1885 and 1893, two non-consecutive terms. And the context here is a painful, unavoidable fact. In losing to Joe Biden, Donald Trump got the votes of 74 million Americans, the largest total of any American election loser in history, and 12 million more than he got when winning in 2016. So just pause on that. Notwithstanding everything that happened over those four years, including that terrible mishandling of the pandemic, leading to the deaths of more than 600,000 Americans, an additional 12 million Americans beyond those who voted for Trump in 2016 concluded, I want another four years of this. Uh, it's as if his failure to achieve very much during his presidency didn't matter to his followers. The message was enough. They still love the show and they want a second season. All that said, my guess is that Trump, despite all his current hints that he is keen to announce soon, may not actually run in 2024. It's over three years away. Who knows where he will be by then? There are more than a dozen criminal and civil cases lining up against him. And most of all, I wonder if he's prepared to contemplate losing. Someone close to him once told me that if Trump thought he was going to lose an election, he would withdraw because he psychologically couldn't cope with losing. He is absolutely the most popular by far of all the Republicans who look like they might run in 2020, in 2024. But he's always been extraordinarily popular with the Republican base. And despite that, in 2020, he lost it all. He lost the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. And since that, he has, in effect, incited an insurrection, and he has been banned from his major communications tool, tool namely his Twitter, his Twitter account. And you have to ask if that really is a winning position from which to launch yourself in 2024. I have my doubts. At which point, I'll finish. Thank you. Thank you, Kim, very much indeed. You've uh, mapped out a very interesting canvas. 
Before going to the questions from um, those who are watching, can I just pick up on a few points to get us uh, started? I thought it was very interesting what you were saying about uh, democracy in the United States, that the checks and balances didn't really uh, work. Um, and the populism of the, the populist message clearly seemed to resonate with, uh, with voters. More people voted for Trump uh, in 2020 than 2016. If that's the case, the populist message uh, persuades, uh, takes hold. The checks and balances don't operate. Um, how then can American democracy create mechanisms which do keep the show on the road, do protect uh, the democratic system? I suppose to some extent this is an international question. These are challenges which are felt in different uh, countries on both sides of the Atlantic. If the checks and balances aren't working, then what can we do to make sure that uh, democracy is secure? Um I think it's a very interesting and it's a very big question. I don't pretend to have all the answers, though I think about uh, about this this a lot. Um, I mean, this is the other side of the argument, but I think it's extraordinary. I find it extraordinary that so many senior, respectable Republican politicians simply to um, endear themselves to uh, to Trump are willing to go along with this fantasy that the election was somehow somehow stolen. And I think it's extraordinary how those who have been brave enough to um, stand up against it and say, this was democracy in action and uh, Biden won the election. Liz Cheney is the obvious candidate, um, who's the daughter of the former vice president, have been pilloried and stripped of their positions in the Republican Party. So it, in a way, it looks worse. It's not just one man there. It's parts of uh, a senior political um, apparatus, senior or senior politicians, and a political party that is that is sort of going along with this. And I find that extraordinary. Look, the most important thing um, is that mainstream politics looks to be delivering. I think that although there have been populist victories in a number of countries in, in recent years, and I think a lot of them does, a lot of this does track back to the 2008 financial crisis, uh, no one has been an outstanding success. I mean, you can argue, I suppose, about Viktor Orban, who's won, I think, four elections now in Hungary, but I'm not sure how much he's delivered for the Hungarian people. But if you look at other populist governments around the world, few of them are doing very well. And it's partly because offering these facile, easy, um, soundbite answers to the great policy challenges of the age, that gets exposed when you actually get into power and have to try and deliver. What mainstream politicians have to do is, first of all, they have to find a way of, of inspiring the public, making the public want to vote for them with the kind of vision that they are they're put, putting forward. And, you know, I mean, there have been some... Barack Obama was a brilliant campaigner and a very inspiring speaker. And um, from the beginning of complete obscurity, he managed to sweep to, to two election victories. He'd only been in, in, in the Senate about two years. So it can be done. It can be done. But you need to be, to be a better 
campaigner and a better politician than a lot of the current generation seem to be. And then when you're in power, you have to, you have to deliver. And as I've said, I think Biden will be forgiven for the Afghanistan kind of chaos if his domestic policies really, really work. I mean, that's in the end why people vote for you. you know, they vote for you on foreign policy grounds. So you need, you need a better campaign pitch and you need then to deliver when you're in power. But the other thing is, I mean, a lot of people play an important role here, but all politicians, both those, the government party and those in opposition, need to stand up for the mechanisms and the processes and the structures of democracy. And the media is crucial here. The media does need to, to call out politicians who are, who are bending the rules or you know, mm. undermining democracy. And, you know, there are countries where the media are the main opposition to, to the government. And for a while in, in America, you know, that felt the case there too. So, um, so that's my third element. You know, okay. People need to be prepared to stand up for, yeah. for what we all believe in, because otherwise it's, it's more fragile than we think. Thank you. You also mentioned uh, currently about Joe Biden and uh, the appeal of his uh, domestic uh, policies, but you touched on the AUKUS uh, deal. Mm. And of course, uh, some in the UK would see this as a signal of uh, a continuingly close relationship between London and uh, Washington. I wonder how much we should Built, how optimistic we should be about the Biden administration from the UK's perspective in terms of de developing not only security deals, but of course, the trade deal. Yeah, I said from the outset, from even um, from, from about the time Biden was elected publicly, that I thought it unlikely that we would get a trade deal early in the Biden presidency and maybe not in his first term maybe his only term, who knows, at all. Why do I think that? Number one, I think that they're watching, as I've said, what happens on Brexit and what happens particularly on the Northern Ireland Protocol very closely. And until we get that sorted, they're going to keep a trade deal or even the offer of negotiations on a trade deal, they're going to keep that back. Uh, maybe they think it's a bit of leverage. I, I mean, they don't say it as as blatantly as that, but I think that is that is the reality. And I think you got a sense of that when the Prime Minister saw the President, recently when the President was really quite negative on the prospects of a trade deal. Second point, look, a trade deal doesn't make much political sense for Biden at the moment. He has a wafer-thin majority in the Senate. He has a bigger majority, but not a very big one in the House of Representatives. Um, he's got midterms coming up. Remember, historically, Kevin, the Republicans are more free trade than the Democrats are. So he's got problems in his own party, potentially, um, and very thin majorities uh, in both houses in getting any trade deal through. And if you're going to make the effort, um, you want to go for something big, wouldn't you, like an EU-US trade deal or uh, something new in the Pacific rather than just um, a trade deal with us, which in terms of its impact on the US economy um, is pretty minimal. So um, it doesn't make sort of domestic political sense for him, for him either. Where we do count and where the Americans will continue to take us seriously is on the defense and security and intelligence side. And that's a very, very strong relationship, really. Whatever political pluses and minuses there are at, at top level, 
um, whether there is a, you know, a very close relationship between the president and prime minister or it's less close, um, between the, the intelligence agencies and the armed services, um, it is very, very close. And uh, AUKUS demonstrates that. And you know, given that America has an interest in us being more present um, in the Pacific and the hope that this will lead us to invest more of our uh, defense you know, in that part of the world and maybe increase defense spending you know, even further, seems to me very much in US interest to, to involve us in that region. Um, after all, they see their major strategic challenge now the 21st century as um, as China, more so than Russia. Yes. That's London. What about Brussels? What do you think the European Union can expect from a Biden ad- administration that it wouldn't have got from the previous uh, president? Well, first of all, a complete change in tone, um, and of course, in substance, because Republicans, I mean, there were some Republicans I've talked to who, who supported the European project. Most of them didn't really. They thought the EU was was just a protectionist kind of block. Um, Democrats on the whole, not every single one of them, but the great majority of them, did support the European project and thought it was a mistake for us to be leaving it and that we were weakening ourselves and weakening Europe by going. Um, So I think the basic Biden position will be to um, you know, to support the European project and whatever the next next iteration of it is, and he'll want to build up close relations with whoever wins the next French elections and with when they finally decide what the new German government is, whether it leads that. Um, and there is a slight risk. I've always thought that um, that Biden administration will become really very EU centric. We'll become a bit of a a bit of a sideshow. Um, Do you think the EU could be uh, some kind of mediator between US and China tensions? I kind of doubt that, honestly. I mean, I think the Americans will want to, in exchange for being much nicer and more positive about the EU than Trump ever was, and maybe if if they do get into reviving the EU-US trade deal that Obama administration started, um, they will look for some payback from, from Europe, and that payback will be supporting U.S. policy on China. Now, for a number of reasons, I'm not sure the Chinese, the Americans want to get into a real confrontation with China, but maybe unavoidable, maybe unavoidable with Taiwan, maybe unavoidable over other things that China is doing in the South China Sea, or it may be over China's trade practices, which are harming all of us. But I promise you, if America gets into sanctions or any other measures to respond to uh, Chinese trade practices, as Trump did, a whole load of tariffs on Chinese products, then they will ask the EU and separately the UK to follow them. Biden, I'm sure, will try and multilateralize policy on China, not do it as America alone. Okay. Final question from me at this stage of the moment before going to uh, our audience. Um, I'm tempted to ask, given your knowledge of Washington and um, U.S. Uh, politics, in 2024, if Kamala Harris becomes the Democrat um, candidate and if she was to become president, 
Um, what kind of president do you think she would be? How different? Yeah, that's a difficult question, Kevin, because when she ran uh, briefly in 2020, she probably was seen as the front runner um, when she launched, and she had quite a, a successful launch event. And, you know, she'd been um, public prosecutor, attorney general down in California, uh, and she had made a name for herself in, um, in the Senate. And maybe looked, given that she was younger than, than some of the other candidates like Bernie Sanders and Keith Warren, maybe looked like it should be her, it should be her nomination. And actually when she got into campaigning and particularly into the debates through the fall of 2019, um, people couldn't work out where she was politically. She seemed to be like a lawyer examining each issue and then positioning herself where she thought it was politically advantageous, rather than working from a deep held set of convictions, whether on the center or the left of the party. So you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren out on the left of the party, and you have Biden being very centrist and Pete Buttigieg being very centrist. But where exactly was Kamala Harris on there? You know, she seemed to veer between the two. And so her campaign actually faded away. And uh, you know, other people like Sanders and Warren and Buttigieg you know, got the spotlight and seemed to get the momentum. So if she is going to come through in 2024, Biden doesn't stand, she emerges the candidate, she will need to establish a much clearer political identity for herself than she has, in my view, so far. And she'll need a track record as vice president, which she can point to and say, I achieved this and this and this. And she was given some, she's been given some big, big dossiers to deal with, notably the extraordinarily difficult one of, of illegal migration um, and what's going on on the southern border, which is a long-winded way of saying it's quite hard to know how she would be as president. She's undoubtedly highly, highly intelligent. You don't get to be, you know, public prosecutor for California and attorney general unless you are very, very smart. Uh, and she is very smart. But where she stands politically, I just find it very hard to, to pin down and say she would do this, or she would do this. I think she is probably more centrist than progressive, but I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't think the American public know either. Thank you. We'll have to watch uh, with uh, much interest. Let me go to Duncan Reed, who asks a question. I think you you have touched on this already, but let me put Duncan's uh, question. Is the so-called special relationship with the UK a myth? The UK is neither the United States' longest, strongest or most important ally. Is this something that simply weak UK prime ministers try to promote to boost their own public image? Um, I was one of those, some of my predecessors were the same, who tended to avoid banging on going, saying too much about the special relationship. Because if, if you talk too much about it, it sounds a bit needy and a bit desperate. So I tended to avoid using it too much in speeches. All that said, um, there are aspects of the relationship that are unique and therefore unquestionably special. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of shared history, there's the cultural ties, but the obvious area is defense, security, and intelligence. 
And America doesn't have a relationship with anyone else of the kind that it has with the UK in those areas. Um, that's simply a fact. Of course, um, another number, number of other countries have fought with America, whether in the in the two, two Iraq uh, conflicts or in Afghanistan, whatever. But no one works closely with them across the board, day to day, as we do. So that is special. But you know, we like to think that that gives us um, an in in Washington, a voice in Washington that is more that is stronger and more listened to than uh, other allies of the US. And it can be true up to a point, and it certainly was true at various points in history, Thatcher Reagan, Blair Clinton, and Blair Bush. Um, Macmillan was actually, this is less funny, but, but Harold Macmillan was very close to uh, uh, <laughs> Kennedy. But one of the factors there is, because the Americans are both hard-headed and quite pragmatic, what are we bringing to the table? We are permanent members of the UN Security Council, we're the second biggest um, contributors to NATO. We used to be around the EU table, able to influence what that that community did. We're not there anymore, which is why I said in 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 opening remarks that that can give us slightly less influence, um, slightly less weight in Washington because they used to come to us to find out what was going on, but also to ask if we could influence EU outcomes in certain directions. And we can't do that anymore. So part of the future, our future importance and value to the US depends on how much of a success we make of life outside the EU under, under Brexit. And you know, we'll see on that. Um, but it's so, therefore, I comment, it is special in a number of ways, but it's not kind of set in marble, this, and destined to be special forever. It comes down to what we bring to the table what we contribute, and how successful we are as a country outside the EU, how successful our economy is, whether we continue to spend what we do at the moment on defence, whether we continue to make a difference around the world. And, you know, that's up to us. Thank you. Uh, you've also, uh, I think, addressed uh, the question that's come in from Thomas uh, Cole. Let me uh, pick up a question from Petra Schmidt. Uh, and essentially, she's talking about the defense relationship across the Atlantic and the particular role of the European Union. She talks about the uh, what will be the future of security or cooperation uh, through NATO or through other channels like the European Union's PESCO uh, project. Um, we'd like to add the European dimension to what you've just been saying. Yeah, I mean, even Democrats were not great fans of um, a sort of you know, European defence dimension, European defence initiative, the various titles it's had uh, through the years, because they tended to believe that, that this was a zero-sum game. And if the EU is doing stuff on defence, then that detracts from and subtracts from, from NATO. So they, the Americans... I mean, Democrats support the EU, I think, as a political project and as an economic project, provided it's not seen as a protectionist sort of block, provided it's kind of open. But they're not massively keen on it as a, as a defence defense project. Because apart from anything else, they're not sitting around that table. But they are in NATO. They're the biggest voice around the table in NATO. So, of course, they would like NATO to be the focus for 
European defence. What they do want, though, is they want European countries, particularly the large, rich ones, to spend more on defence. So they would like Germany to get 2% of GDP. They would like Italy to get 2% of GDP. They know that France spends quite a lot, although they would like um, the French spend it on to be a bit different and to be more interoperational with, with the US. But, um, but I would say their main objective, their main hope in terms of Europe is not the EU doing more, but the biggest EU countries, everyone in NATO, but the biggest EU countries, Germany and Italy, doing a lot more. I'm not sure whether you want to answer this question from uh, Fiona McMahon, but uh, how far do you believe Boris Johnson has damaged the so-called special relationship? I don't, I mean, I think, as I've said, that if, I mean, I'm not massively optimistic on this, but if we can make a success of Brexit, if we can achieve consistent economic growth rates over the next few years that are as good as the best Europeans, if we look to be flourishing outside the EU, but with a constructive relationship that we build on with the EU, then I don't think Brexit necessarily damages the relationship that much, except for taking us out of that, um, you know, the EU, away from the EU table, not able to influence it, which, which just means that We'll have to do better in other areas in terms of delivering value in in Washington. If, however, if however we end up in in a real fight with the EU of the Northern Ireland Protocol, if that gets into into a sort of trade war, or if, in particular, it it seems to be the trigger for. I hope it doesn't happen, obviously, for unrest in Northern Ireland, for instability in Northern Ireland, then I think we'll be blamed for that. Um, and remember that, that there are a number of US, mostly Democrat politicians, who believe that they share some of the parentage of the, of the Good Friday Agreement. Remember, Senator Mitchell chaired some of the talks, great, a great man, but the, the Irish friendship group in Congress um, and a lot of Irish-American politicians, mostly East Coasters, they watch this stuff very, very closely. Every day they're looking at what's happened. And um, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi was over, you know, over twice, I think, in London saying, if you do something that damages the Good Friday Agreement and creates unrest in Northern Ireland, then you can forget any idea of a trade deal. Um, and it's true. I mean, there are enough Democrats who care about this that you have no, would have no chance of getting a trade deal through Congress. So you wouldn't even bother to negotiate it. Let me mention, she said that uh, at the LSE when she spoke uh, to us here. Moving on from that little plug. Um, Ali Feuerlein, uh, a current LSE student, uh, has Trump's presidency done lasting damage to American soft power in Europe? And if so, does Biden have the ability to rebuild it in his current term? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a good question, of course, because of the pandemic, I've not really been across to Europe for the last last 12 months. Um, so I can't claim 
any any you know, real sort of fingertip um, knowledge of how it feels. Um, look, I think there are plenty of people around Europe who will say um, that. I remember when the Afghanistan withdrawal happened, and the Europeans were asking for it to be delayed, and it wasn't. I think some senior French politicians were saying this is just like the Trump days. Um, so it's something which people are quick to to accuse America of if they don't like any aspect of American policy. And of course, if you if you know if you follow the news in America, then um, Trump is letting it be known every day that that he's really really thinking about maybe announcing his candidacy for 2024 very soon. And that fuels this. So I can see why um, a lot of people in Europe may uh, argue that um, that not only has Trump done permanent damage, but there's a chance he can come back and do even more. And therefore, Biden may just be a brief smell of, spell of sort of calmness and clarity before things go back to how they were. Um, I'm not that pessimistic. Um, but I do think it takes, we need the Biden administration to be a success. Um, and uh, uh, I think it would be bad for Europe if, um, you know, if Trump won a second uh, non-consecutive term in 2024. As I said, my, if I had to put money on it, I would say I, I wouldn't bet on that. But, um, but it's not impossible. Clearly, it's not impossible. So uh, the jury's still out. Okay. I remember a couple of years ago, David Miliband used to uh, talk about um, the politics of impunity, that political leaders uh, seem to be able to get away with um, those things which might have brought down earlier democratic uh, leaders, mm. democratically elected uh, leaders. Um, do you think the demise of Trump suggests the end of what he was calling the politics of impunity, that we are now uh, evaluating in more normal ways? Um, I think, as I, as I said in my, um, in my introductory remarks, that a number of things contributed to Trump's loss in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the pandemic was um, well, maybe the major one. Uh, but his failure to deliver on his promises was another big element. But the tone and uh, style of the presidency was also a factor that, that, that turned people off. I don't think it was the biggest factor. But I think if everything else had been a success, people would have swallowed that for another four years. Um, but uh, I think it was, was a factor. I think that the, the impunity point, though, is really interesting. If you think about his run in 2024, especially if he were to not just run, but to win, because it's hard to get away from the fact that he incited an insurrection. He tried to get the election result overturned. You can't paint that speech he gave to his supporters on the morning of 6th January any differently, nor the hundred of times he said, said, said since then that the election was stolen. More than 70% of Republican voters think the election was stolen uh, as a result of what he and his supporters have said. And you know, if you can then run again and win, despite having undermined democracy to that extent, that is pretty extraordinary. Question from Francis Jacobs. Um, I'm going to read this. Um, 
Do you think Americans now want to have a strong leader and uh, strong leader and president, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or someone else? Is Biden, apart from his mistakes in withdrawing from Afghanistan, Afghanistan, also now seen by many Americans, including by independents, as an old and weak leader who cannot even convince Senators Matchin and Sinema to back his proposals or assert his authority over the more progressive Democrats? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. Um, When I was in Washington, and I still do it because I'm kind of hooked on it, I used to look at the opinion polls, the approval ratings for for a president and opposition figures almost daily. And what you noticed was that if anything went badly wrong, um, Trump was, I remember, getting a terrible press over what he said at Charlottesville. um, And he dipped down to the mid-30s then. Uh, And three weeks later, four weeks later, it went back to about 42. It never really rose much above 42, but it went back to about 42. I mean, approval rating opinion polls are a snapshot of the moment. And the perception is out there now because of Afghanistan and because of his troubles in getting his next two spending bills through, that Joe Biden is a weak president because he's struggled with those two things. Afghanistan didn't go well, and the spending bills are currently stuck in Congress. So the snapshot of the moment says Biden is old and weak. I guarantee if he gets them through two or three weeks later, he'll be back up in the polls again. Um, and people think he is, he's doing okay. So how do we doing come, you know, come summer, autumn, 2024? I have absolutely no idea no one else does. Um, but it's way, way too early to, to write him off on the basis of perceptions in the wake of, one, a foreign policy mistake, in my view, and two, his, um, his struggles with Congress. Um, his risk, the risk for him, by the way, just to add a quick point, is if he loses the House or the Senate or both in the midterms next November, then he basically can't do anything for the like, last two years. Can't get anything through. So he has about a year left to get his legislative program through. And the clock is ticking because he can forget it for, you know, for the last, last 24 months of his presidency. But if he gets a lot through in the first term, and that money filters through, as they say, to every neighbourhood, then you can see an effect from that in 2024. But honestly, way too early um, to write Trump in or to write Biden off. Thanks very much. Uh, John Newham uh, picks up uh, the point about elections, uh, recent elections. What are the chances, do you think, that the Electoral College will be reformed? Let's not forget, he says, that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. Yeah, Electoral College is... There is talk of that. Yeah, Electoral College, um, the way it's operating at the moment is it favours the Republicans because um, the smaller states, a lot of them in the South, um, uh, get... uh, Get more votes in the college than their probably than their population justifies. Um, but I think almost the likeliest reform to electoral college in the next four years is that um, 
Puerto Rico and Washington DC get state status, which means in turn, they both get two senators, but all be Democrats, it was guaranteed. And then the Democrats would have four more senators in, in the Senate, and that would tip the balance for them a lot. Um, so you get that reform, but in terms of more fundamental change to American democracy, I mean, there are lots of things given the chance I could sort of wave a magic wand that I would change, um, including the way that, that, that House constituencies, um, uh, you know, Congress, Congress constituencies can be gerrymandered so easily by either Democrat or Republican, depending who is in charge in the state legislatures. That's bonkers. Um, uh, and I think their judicial system, it's crazy that that is so politicized as well. It's crazy that, um, that you know, the Supreme Court has become such a politicized uh, body. So there's a lot that needs changing, but the prospects of changing it, I think, are fairly slim. You may then have answered the next question, which was about uh, what you think Joe Biden might try to do with the Supreme Court. Mm. For example, time limiting the um, the tenure of justices on the Supreme Court. Do you think there's anything going to happen on that front? Look, I think he's under a lot of pressure from especially the progressive wing of the party to do something about it because Trump got... And this was extraordinarily lucky when we got three picks. So he has changed the complex, political complexion of the Supreme Court for potentially for decades to come. Um, and uh, um, the Democrats find this very hard to swallow. Um, the sensible thing would be to time limit um, Supreme Court justice, say give them 12 years or something. I mean, it's extraordinary they're there for life. But that's much harder... I think, to get through than the other idea, which is to expand the Supreme Court. And then you can kind of, you know, you appoint four Democrats and suddenly the balance is, is, is changed again. The trouble is that can go, you know, Republicans then win and um, expand it again or reduce it. And it becomes a kind of political football, depending who's in the White House. So they ought probably to find a bipartisan way forward. And it's a much more sensible answer to... Um, to time limit uh, Supreme Court justices. So whatever happens, whether it's Republican or, or Democrat president, whatever they do on Supreme Court appointed people, it's not like forever. It's not necessarily for the next 30 years. That would be more sensible. But again, this has become so politically toxic an issue. I don't think Biden can afford to do nothing, but it's very difficult to do something. Right, thank you. Uh, there are several questions. Let me uh, combine them. Thomas Cole, Sandra Kahudri, and Nigel uh, Prenter, who are essentially asking um, about the UK rejoining the European Union at some points. Uh, they take your argument that the UK has lost some influence in Washington as a result of Brexit. Uh, would you, uh, following that logic, uh, see the UK rejoining the European Union at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously having spent a lot of my career on European Union and being pro-European, that would be nice, but I did see no prospect, almost no prospect, no, no, no prospect of that happening. 
What I think is possible over time, and I mean probably over the course of somewhere between five years and a decade, is that we build a patchwork of relationships, agreements, designed to solve sector by sector our various problems with the withdrawal agreement that we've done, particularly the problems that our companies are finding in trading with Europe. Um, and some point in the future, you turn, you create some sort of umbrella agreement that, that covers all of these individual sector agreements, and you call that some sort of special relationship between the UK and the EU. So I can see something like that, which might look something like being part of a customs union or not quite as, as, as uh, quite being in the European economic area, but, but something significant. Um, and that might again be a building block for something to happen in the future. But I don't see us rejoining the EU. I mean, it was so painful a, a process to leave and it took so long. I just, you know, much as I you know, might personally think it would be, we'd be better off in than out. Um, I just think, you know, that's done now. And the best we can hope for, as I say, is, is a stronger relationship um, uh, than we have uh, in the agreement that was signed at Christmas, on Christmas Eve. Thank you. Um, Rupert Wallace uh, asks... Um, well, he makes a comment. Americans seem to have lost all self-confidence. If they feel no longer that they are the self-styled leader of the free world and they are unwilling to intervene on that basis and they divided politically and racially at home, what is America for? Um, you do meet quite a lot of Americans, particularly on the East and West Coast, who think that they're going through a kind of you know, fundamental, fundamental crisis but I can assure you that there are lots, lots more Americans who wouldn't accept that at all and who think America is, is you know, as strong as ever. What has gone out of fashion in America, though, um, and I regret this, is the idea that America can intervene around the world to solve um, big international problems and to make the world a safer, fairer, better place. Um, the high watermark of of interventionism has passed. Maybe it'll come back. But I think that the Afghanistan and Iraq experiences have made it very difficult for any American president um, in the near future to do that kind of intervention again. And you saw the evidence of that with Barack Obama, who um, was prepared to sort of bomb Syria and to intervene from, you know, in terms of airstrikes and things like that, but wasn't, uh, would never have been prepared to, I mean, he kept troops in Afghanistan, uh, though he wanted to reduce the numbers all the time, but would never have launched a new intervention, I think. And I think Biden is the same. I think Biden is of a generation haunted by Vietnam and with Afghanistan, whatever the military were telling him, he just wanted to leave. He just didn't think any good from come, would come from it. I just think it's very hard now for any American president, at least for the next decade or so to promote the sort of things that were done that were done the recent part. And if you of course if you turn the clock back to the first Gulf War, where we kicked Saddam Hussein's out of uh, Kuwait, or to Kosovo, or to Bosnia, um, 
Those are three episodes when America did lead in making the world a better place and in writing injustices. But I think that time's gone, sadly. I wish, I wish that were otherwise, but uh, that's how I see it. Thank you. There are several questions which are asking about COP26 and climate change and uh, what do you think the prospects are of the Biden administration getting any deal through Congress in that respect? It kind of depends on, on um, yeah. what the deal how is. Much, how much glass is left on the floor after the arguments over these um, these big spending bills. But I think there are enough Republicans who are not climate change deniers to get something through the Congress. I do think on COP26 that whatever is agreed, I think it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a problem that President Xi is not coming. I uh, didn't expect Putin to come. I think we still don't know if the Indian, Indian leader is coming or not. Um, but whatever is agreed, it'll be better than Paris. So we will get closer to the targets we've set ourselves but it won't be enough. So leaders want to come out and proclaim a triumph, and it will certainly be progress, but it will be just a step down the road towards where we need to be. And the experts and the, you know, the people who really care about climate change will point this out. So it's not going to feel like everyone is applauding uh, what is achieved at COP26, but provided something is achieved and competent something will, then we will just have to build on that in future. The big thing the Americans can do um, is contribute enough money to the development fund to help developing countries respond to climate change, but they are prepared then to make, to make real commitments about what they will do. So that's the key to it all. And I think there's a good chance that, thanks to John Kerry's um, energy in pursuing this inside the administration, the Americans will do something that is that is not bad. Not as much as people want them to do, but that's not bad. We'll take that as an optimistic note to finish <laughs> our, our, our session. Uh, I think when the British say not bad, we can be moderately enthusiastic, really. Um, let me mention, uh, Kim Derrick has just mentioned uh, John Kerry. Uh, those of you who are watching this uh, session may like to know that John Kerry will be speaking at the LSE this Thursday will be in conversation uh, with Lord uh, Nick Stern on uh, climate change. I'm afraid we have um, run out of time for this particular uh, session. Uh, let me thank those of uh, my colleagues who have been involved in the organisation for this, the Morris Fraser Memorial Lecture. And let me uh, give um, sincere many thanks to Kim Derrick, Lord Derrick, for covering so many different aspects of US, UK, EU, China, uh, many different dimensions. And it's been a pleasure to hear his uh, insights and to learn from his uh, experiences. So, and I think Maurice Fraser himself would have enjoyed this conversation uh, greatly. Kim, thank you very much indeed. Thank you to all of you who've asked questions. Uh, we got quite, we got through quite a lot of them, uh, but some, um, inevitably not uh, each of your questions, but I hope you've enjoyed the discussion and um, you'll join us again for the LSE public events. Kim Derek, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.